Hello and welcome to Creative Health Podcast. In this episode, I chat with Helen Chatterjee. Helen is a professor of human and ecological health at University College London. She is also currently the Arts and Humanities Research Council's Programme Director for Health Inequalities. Her research includes biodiversity conservation and evidencing the impact of natural and cultural participation on health. She co-founded the Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance and is an advisor to the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Arts and Health and is a founding trustee of the National Centre for Creative Health. Helen's interdisciplinary research has won her a range of awards, including an MBE in 2015 for services to higher education and culture. Helen has written four books and over a hundred publications and recently launched the world's first masters in creative health at UCL. In our conversation, we discussed how Helen first got into the world of creative health, specific health conditions and a universal offer of creative health. We also discussed the need for cross-sector partnerships and how a large-scale research program she leads is addressing that need. I really hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Helen. Welcome to Creative Health Podcast. Good morning. It's great to be here. Okay. I'm, I feel really privileged that you're here, actually, Helen. I just want to say this up front because you are a leading light in the creative health world and, you know, at the forefront of this movement, which I think we can call it now. And there's so much that we can talk about today, isn't there? And we might not get through everything, but I've got loads of questions that I want to ask you and I'm really excited to hear what you've got to say. As you know, the idea for this podcast is really about increasing understanding about why creativity is so good for our health and well-being. And so I want to get into the detail of some of the projects that you're leading on at the moment, but I wondered if we could start off by me asking you what the phrase creative health means to you? Yeah, it's a really good question, isn't it? Well, thanks ever so much for having me. It's, it's, it's great to be here. And I'm certainly not one of the leading figures, but there's lots of people who have been doing this fantastic work for a long time. So it's great to be involved in that. And it's great that we're a movement now as well, isn't it? So I think for me, it, it's really about giving people, wherever they live, whatever their circumstances, the opportunity to improve their health creatively. That could be about creative engagement with their environment, with their community, with the the resources, with arts, creativity, with nature. And everybody has equal opportunity to get involved in that. That's what creative health means to me. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? There's no sort of like one given definition and people can interpret it in lots of different ways, can't they? But I wonder if we can go back to the beginning of your creative health journey and understand what first got you interested in creative health or arts health and well-being or one of the other many other phrases that it's probably been called over the years was it from a personal place or was it purely professional I think it was a bit of both. I mean, I guess that I first became aware of, I guess, the work around kind of arts and health through my work running a museum. So I was studying for for my PhD in zoology and 
uh, ended up running a zoology museum within the university, within UCL, University College London. And it was, I guess, through running a museum and thinking about what is the purpose of a museum. Why do we have museums? Who are they for? And when I first took over the museum, we didn't really have an audience. It was very much as many university museums were. This is in the 90s. Um, They were kind of languishing often in spaces that were a bit uncared for. They didn't have good uh, financial support. They didn't have good operational support. And we weren't open to the public. We didn't really have many users. And so I was sort of given an ultimatum that the museum's going to close or you've got to do something with it. And so I just started working with a whole suite of like volunteers, other people across the university and reaching out to the sector to start thinking about building an audience. And that's when it got me interested in engagement and public engagement and thinking about, for example, the local communities who, again, they didn't even know we had a museum within the university full of uh, you know natural history oh, collections. Wow. And it was through working in the museum that I got approached by a colleague who I still work with very closely today called Guy Noble. He's the arts curator at University College London Hospitals. He runs their hospital arts and heritage programme. And he just stopped by the museum one day and said, oh, I see that, you know, you're doing this work around schools and you've got these loan boxes. And I wondered if you'd thought about the idea of perhaps working with hospitals. And that for us started, you know, a long term collaboration, really exploring the idea of museums and health. And he exposed me to this whole world of people who were doing brilliant work around arts, creativity and health. Not so much in those days within the museum sector, but for me, then reaching out to museums folk who were also really interested in this idea of kind of arts and health and what that means to work around this topic of public health and think about the topics of health and well-being. Wow, it's so interesting. Do you feel like before then... There was no connection at all then between people visiting a museum, handling objects and it being in any way good for your health or well-being. So there's definitely programmes where some museums were, for example, working with, say, hospital schools. And there was certainly a lot of work around kind of citizenship and engagement and what that meant, I guess, for wider concepts of well-being. I think a lot of the work that people were doing was actually associated with improving well-being, but people didn't really talk about it in those ways. They didn't use that terminology. Mm. And of course, in those days, you know, this is 20 years ago, even the concept well-being was still kind of being explored. There was quite a lot of negativity around it, particularly across, you know, areas of psychology, where this idea of what does well-being mean? How is it distinct from health? And so I guess it was sort of being exposed to the kind of community who were working around arts and health, both in terms of the research and the practice of it. And I might meet, you know, artists or curators who'd done some work with communities that was very much around this theme of well-being and perhaps even done work, say, around arts on prescription. But like I say, weren't necessarily couching it in those terms. And the more that we started talking about museums and health and we started, you know, applying for grants to do research around this, that's when we found a huge appetite from the museum sector. And over the a period of about, you know, between five and ten years, we started building up a huge network of different individuals. Other museums were also doing exciting work that started to come to the fore. People like House of Memories up at National Museums Liverpool, who were very much inspired by yeah. things like MoMA. Similarly, Dulwich Picture Gallery, you know, they'd started doing work with care homes. So there were other folk out there that we sort of started connecting in with who were really interested in this area. But what we found is that it was very isolated, the work they were doing. People were working within their own space, within their own partner spaces, say going into care homes. 
And so eventually, several of us, including, for example, Carol Rogers, colleagues at Tyne and Weir, Archives and Museums, Zoe Brown, colleagues at Manchester Museums, various other museums, we decided to get together and ask Arts Council for some cash to help us build a network mm-hmm. for a way to bring the museum sector together. And that we set up the National Alliance for Museums, Health and Wellbeing. And it was just amazing the response we got. We started getting hundreds and hundreds of members joining oh, us. Wow. And I think that, you know, definitely helped for us. It was a sector support organisation and, and it was that idea of sharing and learning. And so people were able to talk and share more about the work that they were doing with communities and talk about it more using that language of health and wellbeing and helping to grow their network of different kinds of partners that they were working with. Mm. And at that point, were you focused on particular groups of people, like older people, for example, or was it across the board? Well, for us, in terms of the research side of it, because the practice within the museums that we were doing was fairly limited, I guess, in terms of we were a very, very small museum and had very limited staffing. And, and that really replicates what many museums and obviously arts and cultural organisations are facing. You know, they're often, you know, one person bands um, and they're doing this stuff. So for us, it was fairly minimal at a community's level, particularly, of course, because the big area for me that I was growing within the university was the use of the museum by the staff and students of the university. And that wider community piece, it took us a while to get the right kind of staffing in to be able to provide that service. But where we were making much more progress was in terms of the research. So we started, you know, initially I just applied for quite small sums of cash, but eventually started getting some larger grants in from the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And I still work with them today. And that's where we started researching this relationship between museums and public health. And that we really focused on I guess audiences that might be regarded as excluded audiences, vulnerable audiences, audiences that are not typical museum goers. And we worked very much in partnership with museums and organisations who were looking to reach out to specific communities. So for us, that's meant we've worked with all kinds of different communities. Sometimes it's been yet older adults. We've worked in hospital spaces, in other types of care spaces, out in the community. But it's been very focused on, I I guess, audiences with particular needs, for example, refugees and asylum seekers, stroke survivors, people with dementia, mental health service users. So it's been quite targeted. I guess a common theme has been with all of those organisations, it was that they were, and what we were interested in is looking to research the impact of engagement with museums and arts and creativity collections and those sorts of spaces on different aspects of health and wellbeing, but quite specifically targeted to their particular health needs or health conditions, and particularly around what areas they themselves were interested in I guess, growing and changing and looking to improve. And so that has been a big focus of our research, really, is that kind of person-centred approach, which really mirrored, I guess, why those museums and arts organisations wanted to do research. They wanted to understand their practice to ensure that they were, if you like, giving the best kind of service provision that they could to support those audiences. I just I want to come back to this idea of person-centered approach and and culture and art supporting very specific health issues. But I also wondered in those early days whether because you talked about hospitals and care homes for example. So were you taking museum objects and artifacts out to those 
other spaces or was it about getting people into the museum? So a bit of both. I mean, our very first project actually was exactly that. It was taking, uh, that Guy and I set up, was taking that idea of taking museum loan boxes into hospital spaces and care spaces. And uh, we recruited a whole series of different partners who already had a kind of loan box scheme, if you like. So I don't know if you're familiar with loan boxes, but it's this idea. They mm. were really developed through schools programs, weren't they, for, uh, you know, yeah. bo- you know, boxes of, of material from the collections or replicas, handling collections and taking them out into community spaces. But predominantly had been set up in terms of working with schools. And we already had developed some loan boxes that we were using exactly for that. And so we just started experimenting with that idea of just taking those collections out into, like I say, initially hospitals and care spaces. And we started recruiting different museums who were also up for doing that. So we worked closely with, for example, local partners like the British Museum and other smaller museums. And that's really what started the whole project off for us. So that was very, very focused on this notion of handling objects, working closely with objects, learning from objects and having a much more of either a one-to-one or a group session, which is very much about exploring museum objects. So that really, again, for us, opened up a whole world of thinking about that in the context of the overall experience of engaging with museum collections, but also things like we were very interested in the different elements that's engaged in those activities. So, for example, the tactile element, being able to touch stuff. We're very interested in what that means, for example, in terms of hand-eye coordination, precision grip, doing something both physical and kind of cognitive. So having those sort of thinking tasks, learning tasks. So a lot of the interactions that we were looking at we were doing a lot of observation on we were collecting different kinds of information from participants both before and and during and after sessions about their experiences of of that engagement to kind of understand more what it was about those sorts of sessions that could be beneficial but also thinking about some of the challenges or some of the question marks that you know certainly in museums comes up a lot which is about authenticity and the use say of replicas should we even be handling you know, original material. So it enables us to have lots of really interesting conversations. Mm, it's like that whole access versus preservation debate, isn't it? I do remember that well. Um, I, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, not that we want to like delve into that too deeply, but I definitely feel like collections need to be seen and ideally touched and felt as well. But obviously that poses risks to certain materials and so it makes it tricky doesn't it yeah it's an interesting one um so just going back to the specific health issues and specific or targeted groups that you mentioned I'm really interested in the range of opportunities that might be available for people that have specific needs kind of versus I suppose, a more universal offer for everybody. Because one of the things that I'm really interested in is how do you create opportunities for people to benefit through participating in creativity or experiencing creativity at both a sort of quite acute level and as a just general preventative health level? Could you tell us whether 
you know, it all needs to be very targeted or whether you feel like we're moving now towards a more generalised offer that is available to everyone. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely opportunity for both. And I hope we are moving towards that. But you're right, a lot of programming provision offers have been very focused on a very targeted population, a very targeted type of offer, you know, a six week program where you're doing an hour a week um, or two hours a week. And that's been very much reflected across the whole of the arts and cultural sector. Similarly, you know, we work across about nature and wider heritage, natural heritage. And the same there is very specific, if you like, much more intervention approach. And I think there's a lot of opportunity around there. That's where I'd say most of the provision is. But what we're really keen is to think about that move towards what does, like you say, an everyday offer look like? And I think there's considerable opportunity for organisations to do both. But I think there's those offers might look quite different and there are of course resourcing issues the key thing of course is around the funding and the sustainability of funding and what we've seen is over the years there's considerable changes in the way that organizations have set themselves up or how they run themselves including things like what kind of staff you've got and what kind of expertise you need what kind of skills you need irrespective of whether you're providing a short-term intervention or you know an everyday regular offer but I think that shift in terms of the operational aspect, it's sort of growing, but still needs a lot of careful thinking through. And I know that an organisation that we work with closely, Culture, Health and Wellbeing Labs, they've been doing a lot of work on this called, you know, the quality framework around creative health and what that looks like. Because I think one of the things that's certainly come out in terms of that we've observed around interventions is that you're often working with very, very vulnerable populations with very complex conditions. And a lot of the time, those individuals might have multiple health challenges. They might have multiple complex conditions. So, you know, we saw particularly in the museum sector a huge rise because I think of things like the MoMA work, the House of Memories work, the Dulwich Picture Gallery work, that, you know, lots of museums suddenly started working around dementia. And dementia is a really, really complicated disorder. And it gets presented, mm-hmm. as you may know, with very differently in different patients and obviously at different stages in patients' journeys. And there was initially quite a lot of focus on reminiscence and memory recall. And we know from the research around dementia, particularly from the more psychological research and neuroscience research, that, of course, memory recall is very challenging for people with dementia, but also could cause potential harm. And so, you know, we were quite interested in thinking about how can we bring in research that perhaps brings out the positive aspects of engagement when you say working with people dementia that isn't, say, so focused on reminiscence or memory recall and that's more focused on mm. things that we know are beneficial, for example, for slowing the progression of the disease, things like learning new information, keeping your brain cognitively active, doing physical tasks at the same time as, as cognitive tasks and obviously doing group and enjoyable tasks so that you've got a kind of positive psychological element. So I think it's that, you know, these are quite complex interventions. So an everyday offer could look much more general in its outlook in terms of, you know, supporting those wider aspects of health and not looking to tackle specific health outcomes in a situation which is working with potentially vulnerable people. Yes. And I think, yeah, we do really need to get to that place, don't we, where there is this sort of more general offer that can support people's everyday health and well-being and help them to keep well and to sort of look after themselves and therefore 
keep any you know potential long-term conditions at bay as far as is possible whilst also offering this you know much more bespoke and specialized offer for those people who need it who have very specific conditions it's interesting this idea of you know staff needs and how does somebody who works in a museum for example a, a curator or um, even somebody who works on a voluntary basis in a museum or an art gallery or you know a theater or wherever they don't necessarily have the skills to deal with people with very specific conditions so in my mind the solution is that it needs to be collaborations and partnerships that are kind of driving this forward because you know creative professionals are not necessarily trained health professionals and health professions are not necessarily creatives either so it strikes me that the coming together of those two worlds is how you create a really great offer but that in itself has challenges doesn't it not least the longevity or the potential longevity of those relationships can you just talk a bit about that yeah when you're absolutely spot on I mean partnership is absolutely crucial isn't it and we would always say that you know certainly from our experience of doing this for a long time within a particular type of arts organization you know it takes years to build up those partnerships and like you say if you want them to be sustainable you need to think about what those long-term relationships look like and certainly the organizations that I know well who've done this work successfully for 10 years or more that's exactly what they've done they've built up really strategic long-term partnerships with very specific organizations across for example you know it might be particular wards in a hospital it might be particular services within a local authority and really importantly you know that third sector those charities those organizations that have specific understanding of the needs of those different audiences so there is I think a big concern isn't there from the sector around working around people particularly with particular vulnerabilities and that you you know we're not trained health professionals so you're only going to improve your understanding and support those people as best you can by working in collaboration with those partners who have that expertise and and those are certainly the best kind of long-term partnerships that we've seen but like you say it has a big resource even you know, freeing up your staff time to do more of that work and, you know, building and maintaining those partnerships. We know that that's really resource intensive. But again, the organisations that we've seen that have done it successfully, it's because they've essentially changed the whole operational structure. You know, they've strategically changed what their funding is core. So shifting from this kind of project funding, short term funding, often very small amounts of cash, shifting that into thinking about what kind of staff do we need? You know, and so we're seeing more and more mm. of these posts, you know, arts and health type posts in, for example, museums, libraries, arts organisations. And I think that's a really, really positive move. And that's for us why we set up a master's in creative health, because we really recognise there's a huge appetite, I think, for people to think about what does that very mixed interdisciplinary skill set look like if you want to go and work in an organisation like that, but work with closely public health partners, the third sector, voluntary sector. Yeah, I'm going to come back to the master's degree because that's hugely exciting. But I just wanted to draw out a little bit more about this issue around partnerships and kind of staff skills and and indeed staff well-being. Because I know from my work in Kent over the last 10 years, I would say that's the thing that I have probably spent most of my time trying to initiate and pursue is those cross-sector 
partnerships and interdisciplinary teams, but they have all really been quite relatively short-term programs of work. And so you do all of that work to create a partnership and, you know, you find different organizations who can work really well together and you, you know, find your shared outcomes and you come up with this amazing project, which you evaluate and it has all these great outcomes and impacts or potential for long-term impact, but then it sort of drops off and there's this, you know, real struggle to get any further funding to keep it going. And so I just wondered whether you had any thoughts on how we can solve that problem. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem. And I alluded to it earlier that the sort of short term, small scale funding, which we know really limits most organisations and individuals, because of course, a lot of this community of freelancers um, like yourself is, you know, how to yeah. keep that work going. And it's it's a big topic of, of work for us at the minute as part of this grant programme that I think I'll talk about a bit later, but is that that's really stopping, I think, the sector from growing in in the way that it would like to do and has the potential to do and therefore having significant potential to contribute to public health prevention and intervention programs. I think there are positive changes. I mean, the way that Arts Council, for example, are funding NPOs, the National Portfolio Organisations, where we've seen organisations get rewarded for building these partnerships, recommending that, you know, within those partnerships, they have posts that are dedicated, recognising that it's important to have posts that are dedicated to this kind of work. So having well-being type posts and recognising that that's really necessary to keep the work going, that you can't, you know, just get small grants in and expect to keep this going. So there are positive steps, but I think there are these much wider issues of, the sector and how the sector is able to take opportunities of other types of funding. So outside of most of the places that people get their funding, which is, you know, Arts Council, Lottery and Esme Fairburn, etc. And lots of those organisations mm. are changing the way that they are funding work in this way as well. But I think really what the, the, the main solution is that we need to have much more cross-sector working. We need to have cross sector working when it comes to funding, cross-sector working when it comes to things like commissioning. So this is really a massive topic for social prescribing. As that has grown, the, the money that has been made available for social prescribing to grow in the UK, as you probably know, has been directed towards the social prescribing link workers, which is great. But the, provi the provider end, they haven't seen any new uplift in funding. So there is no opportunity for them to be able to grow their provision or even start provision unless you can source external funding. And that mm. is so much of that funding is still short term. So again, it's a sort of catch 22 for those organisations. There's a huge appetite we know from the sector wanting to work around creative health, support social prescribing and place-based working, mm. but that funding issue. So it's certainly an issue we're very keen to talk to different government departments about. We need cross-government working. We need cross-sector working. We need it at national levels, but we also need it at those local regional levels. And I hope that there are opportunities around the new integrated care systems and the partnerships that they are looking to support. Well, let's come on to that. But just before, just in case anybody doesn't know, can you just, in a nutshell, tell us what social prescribing is? Yeah, well, social prescribing refers to community-based sources of support. So a referral from a healthcare professional, that could be anybody, it could be a GP, it could be a nurse, 
to a link worker who then recommends people on to local services opportunities. So that might be debt advice, it might be a food bank, it might be an arts activity, it might be exercise on prescription. Um, And those link workers have been really crucial to being that connector into what's available in the community. It's brilliant, isn't it? And it just makes such common sense. And you sort of wonder why we haven't been doing this forever because it is just all about people taking care of themselves within their community isn't it and being supported by their community rather than having to go to the GP for everything. Yeah absolutely I mean I think the big challenge is that there's obviously a huge difference in the provision you know from region to region even from borough to borough from street to street and that's the challenge is what is available in your area what resources are there in some areas are really well resourced and then other areas are of course very poorly resourced so uh, you know even if you happen to have a link work in your area it's just about what is going to be available to you what's accessible to you we know things like transport obviously finances accessibility are are a big issue Mm. so I think it is definitely a branch of one of the answers but we need to have a much more communities focused approach to understanding and and that importance of what we would call asset mapping and understanding what is in your area but also what's missing and what do your community need and so that's an area that we're really interested in is that identifying you know what what assets you have but also what is missing yes okay so let's get on to integrated care partnerships because this is a big shift in the way healthcare money is going to be spent locally isn't it so if you could just in a nutshell tell us what they are and how does creative health relate to integrated care partnerships and then the kind of social and wider determinants of health what does that mean Yeah, well, as you may know, integrated care systems came into place as a statutory requirement last, I think it was July, they started being rolled out. And the idea is that so locally, what used to happen is the funding would be disseminated via what was called a clinical commissioning group that was made up of various different bodies, the NHS trusts, local authorities. And in some ways, the ICSs, the integrated care systems, sort of mirror that. But the idea is that the integrated care partnerships that sort of sit under these at this systems level, they will have representation from all those different bodies across, for example, housing, leisure and tourism. It might include parks, all the different, for example, statutory services, psychological services, CAMS, children and adolescent mental health services, the NHS trust, the primary care networks. So the idea is that you've got all these different players across, for example, the NHS trust, the local authorities, but also representation from the voluntaries, communities, faith sector. So that all sounds really brilliant. We know that it's taken a long time to get the integrated care system sort of set up. The management of them is slightly different from the clinical commissioning group. So obviously there's a lot of logistical changes. They had to appoint chief execs. In some cases, those are the same people or similar people who've been involved in the previous system set up. But they're just coming into play now. But they're really, really important because, like you say, they're the ones that hold the budget for the health and social care systems in a particular geographic area and they have quite you know in some cases quite big geographic reaches so they might include you know multiple local authorities or a county council and a local authority a borough council a county council that might involve multiple nhs trusts so they have quite broad geographic remits but the idea is to think about these more locally based partnerships 
So I think there are lots of opportunities mm. around creative health because in a way that philosophy of creating health within the community through partnership absolutely is what creative health is about. It's about health creation in the community, isn't it? So I think there's a lot of opportunity around there and, and a really positive step over the last few months has been the provision from Arts Council through the National Centre for Creative Health, funding Creative Health Associates posts where there's going to be a series, I think we've got nine of them, and these posts are going to be creative health specialists who will sit on the integrated care partnership, they'll sit on that board, and their job will be to do exactly what we've just been talking about, doing that mapping, who's out there, what kind of provision Mm. is happening. So I think there are positive steps. Of course, that's only nine people across the whole of England. So it's, you know, that's clearly not enough to, you know, ensure that we've got an amazing creative health (laughs) offer for everybody across all communities. But I think those sorts of posts are exactly the kind of thing that we need at local levels. And what you would ideally have is posts like that, that have multiple satellite posts at much more local levels who can do that mapping, who work, for example, with link workers, who work with local providers, who work with referrers to think about then these more targeted approaches to health, which is what I think we need to move towards. Mm. And then, so the idea would be that the creative sector within a region is part of that partnership and is part of the offer. And I guess with that comes a need to sort of shift people's understanding that creativity should be part of that jigsaw puzzle of people's health and community health, that because of all the you know amazing work that's gone before that has shown us through you know evidence that it really does help and it helps in all sorts of different ways but do you feel like there's still a lot of work to do in people just generally out there understanding this whether that's people who are working in the health sector or the voluntary sector you know or even the creative sector you know there's still a long way to go, I feel. It's really exciting. Don't get me wrong. I think it's amazing. And it's moved on so much in the 10 years that I've been sort of, you know, working around this area. But yet still, I think if you went out and asked the average person on the street, whether they did anything creative to support their health and well-being, would probably look at you slightly blankly, like they didn't really know why you were asking that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that I think is still a big challenge for us. Like you say, it's grown hugely and there's a lot more positive support around it. There's lots more positive stories about it, even in the media, but there's also negativity still. So there's still a lot of convincing to do. So there's, I think there's a great willingness to work, isn't it? I often call them the coalition of the willing people like us. And there's many people like us, both I meet across health services, social care, local authorities, in research, in the arts, cultural sector, you know, nature, sports. There's a lot of interest mm-hmm. and willingness to work and collaborate more collegiately to think about these issues and think about how we can make them more accessible. But I think there is also a lot of scepticism still from certain quarters around things like the evidence, the impact of that evidence, is the evidence strong enough? You're certainly, for us, a lot of what we're, we're still faced with is that we're competing with things like a randomised control trial about a certain clinical intervention when you just cannot mm. compare a non-clinical community-based intervention that involves, say, arts, creativity, even access to the outdoors, being in nature, wild swimming, to 
a clinical intervention like a drug intervention. It's simply nonsensical. But we're still asked mm. to meet those sorts of gold standard levels of research because the sorts of evidence that we have, which is you know, uh, it's hugely extensive. If you look at the Creative Health Report from, you know, five years ago nearly now, you know, that's, yeah. there's only a thousand different references and reports in there, grey literature, peer-reviewed literature, and a mix of both quantitative, albeit more qualitative research. But still, for some people, that's, despite the weight of evidence, that's not seen as enough. And so I think it's really about us all also moving towards shifting the conversation from we're never going to be able to compete with the gold standard perceived gold standard of of a randomized controlled trial but instead Mm. it's kind of nonsensical isn't it to say that somebody who's more active in their community that is going out and doing arts activities they're being creative in their own home they're accessing nature they're going out in their parks they're doing they're being physically active that being cognitively active is going to be healthier. We know that from epidemiological studies, Mm. that people who go to museums more often than people who don't are automatically just less likely to have ill health problems, particularly later in life. So the more active you are culturally, the same with the nature-based evidence. So we've got to shift, I think, the conversation from individual health interventions to the fact that we're supporting these wider social determinants of health and that we can make a massive contribution to health prevention and keeping the population healthy. Mm. And I mean, I, I get it and I'm not an academic, but obviously, you know, I have done projects that have been evaluated and I've, you know, worked in the public sector for more than a decade. So I understand, you know, it's similar in, in the local authority context, you know, they want to put the funding into what what has already been proved to work but some of this is just common sense though really isn't it and so you know why do we need to do a clinical trial like you say to know that actually if you spend time in nature and you walk and do exercise or you know you do things that make you feel happy are good for you you know, we, there's, and I'm not a health expert either, but I know the connection between my body and my brain, you know, and that one has to feed the other. So it is slightly frustrating, I have to say, as somebody who's been working in this for so long, that we're constantly said, well, you know, we need the evidence. Because either it is already out there or, you know, why do we actually need that kind of evidence? You know, surely. As human beings, we all just understand that these things are good for us. Or maybe we don't, and that's the problem. Going back to what I said before about asking somebody on the street, you know, maybe there just isn't enough knowledge out there, you know, and enough sort of common sense for people to adopt these things by themselves. I mean, I think it's both ends of the spectrum. I I think one of the big challenges that we're very much situated within a biomedical model, that's the way our health infrastructure is delivered. That's the way our health is funded. You know, huge emphasis on intervention, very little focus on prevention and healthy living, particularly in terms of, for example, the spend, whether it comes to NHS trusts or local authorities including things like, you know, one of our big, biggest bugbears, many people across the sector is even just basic things like we've seen our school's curriculum, we've seen arts, creativity, sports, exercise, mm. access to the outdoors stripped from the curriculum as not seen as a priority. I would say they're more of a priority than anything else. If you don't understand how to look after your own health, you can't be socially, economically psychologically successful in your life you're setting people up for failure and I I think particularly people living in the poorest areas 
that are in schools where they're not getting any opportunity. You know, I come from Blackpool and I know that many of our schools, my sister-in-law teaches in those schools, that they're getting really limited opportunities and they're being squashed from the curriculum. So if you're sort of Mm. growing populations of individuals where they don't get exposure to, they don't get the opportunity, you know, to go outdoors. Some of the organisations that we're working with, that, for example, work with schools taking kids out into nature and doing really simple creativity exercises. It might be a bit of pond dipping, doing some arts-based activities. For many of those kids, it's literally the first time they've ever been into a field, for example, the first time they've ever seen, Mm. you know, a a bird other than a pigeon. You know, we've seen examples of, you know, 10-year-olds saying they've never seen a squirrel before because they're living in environments where they just simply don't get the opportunity to go outdoors. They don't get the opportunity, say, to go to a museum or a library. So I think there's multiple ways that we need to tackle those issues. And it seems obvious to us that, yeah, visiting your museum, reading regularly, visiting your library, going outdoors, playing outdoors, being active and creative outdoors, all of that is very common sense. But if you've been brought up as an individual in an environment where you've never been exposed, for example, to going to a museum, we know that if mm. a child has never been taken to a museum by its parents, it's far less likely to use a museum in adult life. Similarly, all sorts of arts and cultural engagements, similarly, similar research that's been shown in terms of uh, people getting, you know, involved in nature doing you know outdoors based activities. If you've never done it as a kid, you're much less likely to do it as an adult. So there's really fundamental shifts that we need to bring about. And that's why I was talking about things like cross-government working. You know, we need to be working with curriculum design folks. We need to be looking at Mm. Ofsted. We're kind of measuring the wrong things for success. And that's a real issue, I think, for the health of the public and also the, the economic success because we're investing huge amounts at interventions for people who've already got very complex health conditions. So we're spending more money than ever on the relatively small percentage of health that we can affect, but we're not spending anything on where there is huge potential to improve people's health, and we're not spending hardly any on mm. that. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about it like that, it's just really feels really frustrating and quite upsetting, actually. That you know, why why is that? I mean, we don't we can't answer these big questions in this in the time that we've got here necessarily, but. I think it's really important to highlight them because, you know, there are so many health inequalities and they're impacted by so many different wider things that we've talked a little bit about, you know, and obviously the creative sector and culture and arts can't resolve all of those things. But getting people to participate in some way in in creativity and culture can help a little bit towards people's quality of life can't they yeah absolutely and it contributes to that you know staying fit and active and you know what we're really interested in is we're seeing more and more examples of providers whether it's individual artists freelancers or organizations like museums arts organizations community organizations thinking about how they can bring other aspects into their provision so how they can think about you know we're seeing examples of museums working with food banks how uh, you know arts organizations can say work with a housing association or the local authority housing department to think about these more creative ways of tackling this wider what we call social determinants of health because we know that actually things like your you know where you live where you were born where you grow up where you work 
if you're in work, they actually have a much bigger impact on your health than anything else. So we know that if you give people the opportunities mm. to be in successful employment, to be able to feed themselves, to live in safe, you know, comfortable, clean housing, and they've got other community resources around them, like a museum or a library, a great green space, an arts mm. organisation, that they are automatically going to be healthier. They're less likely to get cancer. They're less likely to have mental health issues. So we do know at that kind of big systems level that that has a direct mm. impact on public health. That's the sort of work of, you know, Michael Marmot and others have shown that for over, mm. you know, 10 years now. But I know that he shares that frustration around, you know, it isn't really rocket science. It makes sense that if you improve the quality of people's environment and their circumstances mm. in which they live, that they are going to be healthier. So there's a real shift. But I think the big challenge is it really does require quite complex cross sector thinking and particularly you no know, cross-government thinking and I think unfortunately our mm. current systems are such that it makes that very hard even when you speak to individuals who recognise that for example people within the Department of Health and Social Care or people in DEFRA or DCMS but they recognise mm. that this is really important but because it's such a big system shift you know it's, it's not going to happen overnight but at least people are starting to have the conversation and certainly the research programme that we're working on at the minute, which is really all about this systems thinking and how we can shift systems. There's a lot of interest in that. And um, yeah, that I think is at least a positive. So it's not going to change overnight, but at least there might be opportunities in the future. So let's move on to some of the many different hats you wear, Helen, because you are involved in a number of different organisations, networks, projects, and I'd love to know more about those, what's happening with those, and then maybe a little bit about your aspirations for the future. Sure. So if we start with the National Centre for Creative Health, I know where that comes from, but not everybody might know that. So do you want to explain what that is and what your involvement with it is and, and what it does? Sure. Well, the National Centre for Creative Health is a national strategy organisation that's really focused on how we can embed creative health, predominantly across the kind of health systems, but more widely, I think, in terms of the different kinds of systems that operate across our communities. And it really came out of a recommendation from the 2017 Creative Health Report, which was produced by the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Arts, Health and Wellbeing. And I was one of the advisors to the APPG. And that's how I got involved in helping to set up the National Centre for Creative Health. Lord Alan Howarth, who was the co-chair of the APPG, basically called together lots of us to think about once we'd launched the Creative Health Report, what were the next steps? And one of the 10 recommendations from the Creative Health Report was to set up a national strategy centre. So we got a load of us in the room and said, look, this is what we need to do. Who's up for joining in? And so mm. I was just really keen on, I guess, thinking about those next steps and what the sector needs. And I guess particularly with a research hat on, from our perspective, you know, we're really interested in those sorts of system changes that need to come about. And that was a real focus for the ambitions around the National Strategy Centre, working very closely with then the sector support organisation, the Culture, Health and Wellbeing Alliance, who also very work very closely with the National Centre for Creative Health. So I'm one of the trustees, along with a, a group of uh, other great people with lots of different expertise. And if you like, I'm the sort of one of the kind of academic advisors. 
so yeah, we're we're in our infancy, really. You know, we set up as a small charity and uh, appointed the brilliant Alex Coulter as the executive director, who uh, many people will know from her great work in Arts Health Southwest. And yeah, doing loads of brilliant work. I mentioned about the Creative Health Associate Programme that's funded by Arts Council that's run through the National Centre for Creative Health. And my main work with them is that they are our national partner in a large grant programme that I'm working on with the led by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is part of UK research. It's actually lots of different research councils have put cash into it. So it's a multi-million pound research programme. It's called Mobilising Community Assets to Tackle Health Inequalities. It sort of does what it says on the tin. It's really about that systems working that we've been talking a lot about, how we can, you know, enable community organisations, resources, assets, individuals within our community to be able to work more effectively with each other to collaborate long term with health partners, particularly with a view to integrating within the integrated care partnerships. So that NCCH, National Centre for Creative Health, are the lead national partner on that research programme with us. Okay, so can you talk to me a a bit more about that? Because we've talked about community assets earlier. So this programme, Mobilising Community Assets, what is that doing? What's its long-term aim? Well, it's really thinking about some of those core barriers as well as enablers that we've been talking about things like so we know that there's great work don't we that goes on in that communities voluntaries arts cultural sector but we know that they've got some major challenges in terms of for example sustaining their offers in terms of what we know that many of them would like to do which is enhance their offer they'd like to scale it up and that's really what this grant program was about it was enabling research to be undertaken by different groups of academics working closely with different types of community organisations to understand what would scaling up their offers look like if they were building long-term sustainable partnerships with those health partners, given the changing landscape of integrated care. So the kind of research that they're doing is very place-based. It's quite specific, often with very specific communities, particularly geographic locations. So for example, I'm up here in Blackpool at the minute and I'm seeing one of our projects. uh, We've actually got two projects funded up in in the northwest in this particular geographic area. What those organisations are doing is really working with local communities, looking at what local assets, resources, organisations, individuals are in those areas who are supporting, if you like, wider community health and thinking about how they can collaborate more effectively together. So a lot of what we see in the community sector is everybody's competing for the same amounts of small-scale funding and they're often doing it in isolation. And what this grant programme is about is really about how can those organisations collaborate with each other to think about the wider offers that they may be able to provide for communities and particularly thinking about who in those communities should they be targeting. So there's a lot of emphasis on working with those communities, working with people with lived experience. So another organisation we work very closely with is the Lived Experience Network. And we've appointed a lived experience coordinator who's joined our team and works closely with the LENS and the National Centre for Creative Health and I and our research team. And so there's a real emphasis on How can community researchers, people with lived experience, be involved as researchers to research this process Mm. of collaboration and thinking about what some of those enablers and barriers are, both for working collaboratively across communities, but also for that already very complex ecosystem, working with the very complex health ecosystem? Because we know for community organisations, 
even just understanding who in the health ecosystem they should contact, you know, who in the local authority, who in the NHS trust, which GP, what does, a, you know, they don't necessarily know what a primary care network is. So who even to contact within a local authority, within psychological services, for example, is really challenging mm. for many organisations. So what we're looking at is what are some of those challenges? How can we best overcome those challenges? And how can we improve things, particularly for those populations that might be missing out, particularly on those sorts of community offers, because they effectively mm. don't either have them in their area, they don't know what's available in their area. So addressing those issues of accessibility. It sounds fantastic. And it is completely addressing what we've been talking about today, isn't it? Is this need for partnership working and collaboration over a long period of time, you're utilising community assets. So you really are bringing it all together in this program which is amazing and so what point in the program are you at and how long has that got left and then what might be the next steps after that current funding period so we've already funded 12 pilot projects they ran from 2020-2021 they're sort of you know they've been finishing off you know, just about now. That was in phase one. And we funded phase two projects that were slightly bigger amounts of money, but they were much more focused on, if you like, building a wider collaboration. So that idea of scaling up, what does that look like across? And that's what we're in at the minute. So we're in phase two at the minute. They've been running since the start of this year. Mm -hmm. They'll run until kind of, you know, September, October, November this year. And we just advertised phase three of the programme, which is the large scale funding input, where we're hoping to spend 25 million on around 10, 13, 14 different large-scale consortium projects across the UK. And they will run for three years. And that's really much more about going then in-depth into what do these mm. larger-scale collaborations, we might call them creative health collaborations, across communities, academia, we might also say business, and that wider health sector. So what they're doing is looking at those different relationships across that collaboration, across that consortium. I mean, that sounds amazing. Are those partnerships all academically led? Do they need to be led by a a UK university? Well, so the the money, it has to go initially to a research organisation, so a university. But what we've been really explicit about is that the collaboration, the investigators, if you like, can't just come from academia and they can't just come from one area of academia. So they have to involve community partnership. They have to involve partners within the health sector. And critically, they have to involve community members. So, you know, that's quite a new way of working for all sectors, I think, for the academics, you know, although many academics might have collaborations with particular community organisations, that idea of working with different types of community organisations, working with different people across the local authority, the health sector. So it really needs that kind of multidisciplinary, multi-expertise coming from multiple Mm. areas to make it work. And what we'd really like to see is that those sorts of partnerships, particularly within the three-year programme, growing to think about some of these longer-term issues of, for example, sustainability, funding, what do different kinds of relationships look like? Like we mentioned business earlier on. And, you know, that's an area that Mm -hmm. we as a sector haven't really explored, but we know that there is potential funding through things like corporate social responsibility. You know, what opportunities are there to link with what are known as anchor institutions? It might be large local employers. What role could they play in terms of supporting this wider public health infrastructure and partnership with, say, an arts or community organisation? What kind of partnerships might, might we see 
where we were talking about this idea of co-location of services, you know, a library linking up with food banks or becoming warm spaces. And we're seeing more and more examples mm. of that sort of co-location of service. And that's something we're looking to explore in this programme. Mm. It's so exciting, really genuinely exciting. And I can't wait to see what comes out of those projects so they're open for application at the moment are they or has that well, that's closed, closed yeah so we've had a, quite a lot of applications as you might imagine for that so hopefully we're going to get mm. a great mix so we'll be awarding those over the coming few months and we'll we'll be announcing those successful projects towards the end of the year they will start their three-year programs in kind of february next year i think those sorts of programs are really challenging because working with a big multidisciplinary teams where potentially everybody's got sort of different priorities is really challenging. But I think the rewards could be huge, couldn't they? You know, just in terms of innovation and thinking about things differently, because you can often get very stuck in your own sector and your own way of working, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it is, like you say, it can be very challenging, you know, even just different academics working together. But we know that these are, you know, complex problems. And the only way to solve complex problems is by having multiple perspectives and using different methods, different data, Mm. different expertise. And, you know, the kind of expertise that is held within that voluntaries, communities, arts, creative, you know, outdoor sector, you know, is is sort of unparalleled the experience that they've got of understanding community needs you know you can't really compare that you know with anything else that's very different of course to then the clinical expertise that's held within our health systems Mm. so it's combining and pooling all of that different kinds of knowledge and I think you know really critically that role of lived experience and those participants involved in those programs are involved in those collaborations those individuals, their insights are really, really crucial. And so again, a big feature of the programme has been about ensuring that there is equitable funding for, if you like, the non-academic members, the really, you know, important lived experience, the community members. So there's opportunities, for Mm. example, for secondment, there's opportunities for buyout, buying in expertise from those organisations as core parts of those research costs. Incredible. And so is the intention then for these programs to give you a kind of roadmap or a blueprint as to how you might be able to roll out or how government might be able to roll out this kind of way of working across the country. Yeah, exactly that. So the the role of the National Centre for Creative Health and myself and the wider research team, we're working with lots of other different types of partners very closely. Everyone from organisations like, you know, What Works Centre for Wellbeing, Natural England, many different organisations to think about how we can draw together that shared learning that you've just talked about. So we're we're already finding out great stuff simply from the, the projects that we've run in phase one and phase two, but we really think over the coming years that longer term engagement with communities at that level and drawing together other research programs other community-based programs things like for example the thriving communities program which looked at this on a smaller scale but looked around the opportunities for this kind of collaboration for social prescribing there's many other programs out there that are, are doing similar sorts of work and what we want to do is draw together all that learning to do exactly what you're talking about what does cross-sector working look like around funding what does cross-sector working look like around say you know policies at different government levels for curriculums for you know mm. local authorities so what we're looking to do over the coming years is really build and grow that partnership of, for us, the, those national partners who we can work closely with that can help us deliver 
that same message that we all know is really important, that there's huge potential opportunity here, but we have to deliver it in a different way. That system has to be really shifted to enable more people, mm. particularly the most vulnerable people, the poorest people, to be able to take advantage of it. It's really inspiring work, Helen. I've got a couple more questions for you. I realise that we didn't actually touch on your new master's degree. Do you want to tell everybody about that? Because that's also really incredible. Yeah, well, I mean, it came out, I guess, from, from me personally and, and colleagues that I work with, I guess a growing frustration that there's a real interest in people wanting to work in this area, but it's really hard, isn't it, to kind of find out what's out there. There's lots of stuff published, you know, there's lots of stuff on the internet, but there's almost too much. So it's really hard to get your head around what's out there and what you need. And so the idea behind the master's programme, it's a master's of arts and sciences, recognising that, you know, this is a really interdisciplinary way of working. You're having to draw ideas, Mm. information, methods, data, concepts from very different fields, from the arts sector, creativity, you know, nature, the outdoors, policy sector, the funding sector, understanding these different landscapes. So it's really about helping students to understand and navigate all of these different types of information. And the sorts of students that we're attracting, I guess, are students that want to kind of enter the world of creative health. You know, we've got students, some of them are fresh from their degrees, but I'd say a lot of them are from already working in different professional backgrounds, lots of artists, creatives, musicians. We've got teachers, we've got people from who've worked in occupational therapy, speech and language therapy, a nurse, pharmacist, you know, so people from very different backgrounds, which is absolutely fantastic for us. So we really learn together. You know, I learn loads from them. And what's really Mm. fantastic with the programme is, I guess, understanding from their disciplinary perspectives, what they perceive as creative health, what they see as the opportunities. So just one example, one of our students uh, who joined us last year as an occupational therapist, and she's set up now a whole creative health occupational therapy network. Um, It's called Creative Roots. Uh, with the last O&T for occupational therapists. So she's built a whole network, you know, with the help of National Centre for Creative Health and working with the Royal College of Occupational Therapists and other groups of occupational therapists. And again, you know, a huge interest from the occupational therapy community around creative health. So what's been really lovely is working with students like that who are, you know, going on and making their, their own movements in their own professions and their own areas and growing the field. So that, that's been the most amazing part of the programme, just what we all learn together and, and what I learned from them is really phenomenal. I mean, I guess it just goes to show, doesn't it? As we said at the beginning, this is such a huge area and there's so many different directions that it exists in or it can be taken. You know, occupational health is just one example you know, from a student of yours. And of course, because our well-being and health at work is vitally important, isn't it, to our quality of life. And, you know, there are many, many, many other contexts in which creativity can really support people's health and well-being. I feel like, I think it's, I suppose you overuse the word inspiring in this interview Helen but it really is inspiring the work that you and many others are doing and really coming at it from all these different angles you know really looking at the policy and the strategy side of things and thinking how can we influence government and how can we make change through that sort of I guess top-down approach but also thinking about you know utilizing the skills and assets that live in a community, whether that's people with lived experience or community groups, the voluntary sector, schools, you know, 
business and we're all sort of attacking it from all these different angles and I think that's why we can genuinely say it's feels like a movement now you know and hopefully it has moved on significantly you know over the last 10 15 years and it's going to continue to grow and make the impact that we all want it to on people's health and well-being so I want to thank you so much for coming on creative health podcast I really appreciate your time and just as a final question what's your aspiration your what would the future look like do you think if you know if the movement continues to grow and people embrace creativity well I guess it's that opportunity for everybody no matter where they live what their circumstances to be able to engage in those community-based approaches and that there's that offer might look very different you know depending on where you live but that that sort of network and that infrastructure of you know creative health advocates like us if you like that are out there and that they're networked in and they're thinking about what that provision looks like I guess particularly for those people who are not necessarily going out to their local arts centre and not engaging in arts and creativity and don't necessarily have the same opportunities that other people have so that would be my ambition is particularly for those people who don't get those opportunities do have those opportunities and that there is that you know really necessary infrastructure and that ecosystem to be present to make that happen thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more please subscribe rate and review and share it with your friends and networks follow the show on instagram at creative health pod and via the website creative-health.co.uk. This episode has been edited by Tom Double. Creative Health Podcast has been supported through Kent County Council's Arts Investment Fund. In the next episode, I talk to Carolyn Forsyth, Executive Director of Talawa, the UK's outstanding black theatre company. We talk about the importance of providing spaces for black and global majority voices in theatre, about why creativity is important when you're young and about having a creative outlet of your own. Carolyn was really honest and lovely to talk to. I think you'll enjoy it too.